we must correct and rebuke someone who is a believer. We must approach that person privately. We must keep the matter between them and you, personal. Expressing your concern with humility and a desire for resolution. And if that issue persists, then you take two or three with you. That means at least four, it could be up to four people total. Go and talk to the person again. The, the, and, and, and those persons, those people listen to both sides and make it this, you know, say, hey, listen, well, they're right and you're right. Because usually there's always, I always tell people, there's always three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. And the truth is someplace in there. It's, a lot of times in our minds, we misconstrue things. But the whole point is to, to provide a possibility to rebuild the relationship. It's always about reconciliation. If it still remains after that, you take it to the church. And I don't mean you bring it up here on Sunday morning and we have everybody on stage and we hash it out. No, you take it to the elders. And the elders act as judges in this. And they, they and believe me, chances are you're going to chastise them both. It's important to note that the ultimate aim in confronting somebody is to reconcile and restore the relationship. Isn't that what God does with us? We, when we were sinners, we were apart from God. And what does he do? He reconciles us by what? By the cross. By saving us from our sins through Jesus Christ. He's all about reconciliation. Well, good morning. I haven't had a chance to say that just yet. So glad you're here this morning. Um, you know, we, we all have... We all have responsibilities. We all have things that we are, we are called to do, that we are to do. Things that obligations, you might call them. As, as married men, we are obligated to our spouses and to our children. We're there, we're there to, we're supposed to be nurturing and loving our wives. And as Christ loves the church and our children, if we have children, we're to... to teach them and help them to grow to know the Lord. I'm a firm believer in the fact that men need to be the spiritual leaders in their home. And it's my goal, if, I, if any men want to, I'm more than happy to walk through how we do that. In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 22.6, the, the writer says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's wise words. If we teach our children, it's interesting, uh, Caleb is now 14 and Abigail is, is is 12, and you, you, I'm starting to see some, a lot of those things that I've taught them when we, they were young. I'm seeing the benefit of the things that I've taught them. So this verse holds a lot me. I, I remind myself of it all the time. You know, if I train them up the way they should go, then they won't depart from it. Now, the obvious thing with that is that if I'm training them the way I should go, that means I need to be going the way I should go. But we're to provide for our our families. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 he says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he says he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We also have obligations to our community. I mean, we're to be good citizens in our community. We're not supposed to be going around tearing things up. We're supposed to be obeying the laws. We're to pray for our worldly leaders. We're also supposed to pray for our church leaders. And we are to support our church and our community with our talents and our tithes. But it seems unfortunate today, I think, that humanity, our humanity seems to have a tendency to pull us away from our obligations. If we look at the world today, 
there are a lot of men who were married and have, have, have just ignored the obligation they have to their family. A lot of mothers who have, have forgotten the obligation they have to their children. A lot of people have forgotten the obligation they have to their country. I'm talking about the leaders that we have in Congress right now. I think a lot of them have forgotten their obligation, what they're there for. And many people have forgotten the obligation that they should have to God himself. We place those obligations on the back burner. We, we forget to pray for those that we should be praying for. When our finances are thin, we, we have a tendency to pull back instead of being generous. When, when God promises that if we are generous at all times, he will do more than we could ever imagine. In the book of Malachi, they, been, they were struggling because they weren't providing for the temple. And Malachi tells them, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. In Malachi 3.10, he says that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And, and I believe that that's more than just talking about money. It's talking about all of it. If, if, we, if we pour ourselves into being the people we're supposed to be in our families and the people we're supposed to be in our communities and the people we're supposed to be in our church, God is going to pour out blessings. I'm not talking financial. I'm just talking about the peace that comes. And yes, we're going to have struggles, but there's peace that's going to happen. We're going to have struggles in this world. We know that. We know that persecution is coming. We shouldn't be surprised when we have struggles in the world. It aligns with what Jesus himself taught his disciples before he went to the cross. He, says, he tells them in John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So you wonder why the world hates you at times? Well, that's why, because you're not part of it. He says, but I chose you out of the world because you are not of this world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The world is, and the world he's talking about are those who haven't surrendered their lives to Christ. And, and I'm not saying that everybody who, who does is perfect. What I'm saying is it begins by surrendering. The world hasn't surrendered. They're in rebellion to God. And, but we're not to be part of this world. We're supposed to live lives that are countercultural. We're not participating in the rebellion of this world. This is all part of God's plan for us, remaining here despite the hostilities that we see in the world towards us. But he hasn't just thrown us out there. He hasn't just thrown us out there without any, any life preservers. He hasn't thrown us into the deep end without any of the resources we need to survive because... The divine provisions he has made for us is there to support us believers, including divine protection. And his presence in response to Jesus' prayer. When Jesus was praying one time, he says, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's talking to his father. He says, but that you keep them from the evil one. In this world, we're going to have persecution, but we have God with us to make it through it. Now, many times he may take it away from us. He may protect us. I, I, I think of the story of Job. You know, Job was supernaturally protected by God, and Satan, Hasatan, comes to God and says, you know, and when God says, have you, have you seen my, my servant Job? And, and Satan says, well, yeah, because you protect him. No wonder he believes in you. And God says, okay, I remove the protection, but you can't kill him. You can't touch him. See, God protects us. He keeps us from things. Just think about what would happen if God did not protect us. And I'm sure you guys have felt the same way I have at times when, you know, you're coming up on a light and you're like, I just feel like I need to stop. 
And you stop, and the car blazes through and blows the red light. And if you had not stopped, you would have hit that other car. Or they would have hit you. God protects us. We, we receive divine guidance on how we are to conduct ourselves in this world. And the purpose of this guidance is not to create in us this pride, like we're better than everybody else. Or to, to make us be contemptible towards those who aren't, haven't surrendered their lives. But it's to look at the lost with compassion. Knowing that they're lost. Knowing what they should have and what they could have if they would just surrender. But instead they choose to be in rebellion against God. So Paul continues to admonish Titus, and and he reminds us of our responsibilities. If you go to Titus 3, verses 1 to 2, is what we're looking at this morning. He says, remind them, he's telling them to remind the people, to remind those believers in the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, could you imagine <laughs> that Paul thought about this, and this is just very much valid for today. Paul asserts that God establishes authority. We are called to submit to authority and be obedient to it. In Romans, he tells them, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now listen, I don't particularly care for every president we've ever had in my life, but I also know that God put them there for whatever reason, and they had a choice to whether they would follow him or not. And if they don't, ultimately they, they come out. There's no doubt. And their, their sins will find them out. It may take a while. But I need to be submissive to them, and I'll qualify that in a moment here. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not terror to good conduct, but to bad. What he's saying is, if you're good, if you're behaving yourself, you don't have anything to worry about the rulers. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. But being submissive to our leaders begins, first of all, by praying for them. I'm, I'm afraid today, not very many people pray for our leaders. Again, Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, he says, First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayer, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he lists, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we, and why? So that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If we're praying for our leaders and they're leaving us alone, then we can lead peaceful lives. Maybe we haven't been praying enough for our leaders. Now, while acknowledging we have this duty to obedience, no doubt, the Bible also highlights, though, there are instances where civil disobedience may be warranted, such as when the earthly ruler's commands conflict the will of God. And believe me, there have been plenty of times when our rulers have not done things that go along with the will of God, and we are to disobey those rules. I want to give you an example, and there are many in Scripture, but many of you who have been in church long enough, you know this story. This comes from the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 3, says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to, to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors. So these are all the rulers, all the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered at the, for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But there's a problem. Within that nation are a group of people who were brought in captivity from Jerusalem. And their God says, he is the only one. That is to be worshipped. That's Yahweh. They're to worship God alone as we are. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three friends of Daniel who were brought. Those are, their, those are not their Jewish names. Those are their Babylonian names. They refuse to bow to the image. They are defying the authorities. They are disobeying the king. Well, how could they do that if... We're supposed to obey our rulers. It's because when our rulers do say something that's against what God says, we are to disobey them. So, what's going to happen? In Daniel, verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? These weren't just, these weren't just common folks. These were men who were in the government. They were part of his his administration. He says that, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, then good. But if you do not worship it, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They told him, King, our God can protect us, but if he doesn't, oh well. So they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and they come out, without a char mark, and they don't even smell like they've been in a fire. And the amazing thing is, is when they were in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar sees four men in there instead of three. The fourth one, we believe, is a Christophany. It's a, it's a, a presentation of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ in the flesh at that time in the Old Testament. God protected them. Jesus was with them even though they were not obedient to the king. But it wasn't just because they didn't want to be obedient. They didn't like what the king had said. It was because it was going against God's will. And believe me, there are many things in our country that go against God's will. We're encouraged to be law-abiding citizens, loyal and obedient to the authorities, unless the commands directly oppose God's will. But it's not enough that we are good citizens. We must also be public-spirited, well, 
and well, as, as well always ready to do what is good. If there's a community emergency, Christians should be the first ones to respond. I, I've always watched you know, Samaritan's Purse. When, whenever there's an emergency, they're usually one of some of the first ones to respond. And it's a Christian organization. Whenever there's a natural disaster, they're sometimes the first ones to respond. Many times the, the, uh, the administration, the paperwork it takes to get things happening with the federal government takes too long. So you have Christian organizations who will go in first because they don't have to do all that. That's the way we should be. Ready to respond with help when, whenever, whatever ways God has provided for us to respond. It's our duty as good as citizens to respond whenever and however we can. That's why it, it breaks my heart when I see online, and I don't like to watch these videos, but obviously the algorithm pops them up all the time, of you know, somebody being beaten up and everybody standing around with their phones taking a picture, why, taking a video of it. I'm like, why aren't you stopping this? There are 15 to 20 of you and there's three of them. Why don't you stop it? Well, if I stop it, I won't get as many likes on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. As Christians, we must step in and we must stop injustice. I, I can't imagine anybody, anybody if, they, if, if they see a drowning child, not jumping in and trying to save that child. That's how we should be. It's our duty to respond whenever and however we can. However, it is highly probable that Paul is envisioning more than just civic duties here. He's, he's talking about more than just in this context. The willingness to engage in acts of goodness should indeed define us, not only as citizens, but as our neighbors. We should be helping our neighbors and being nice friends with our neighbors and helping them and our family members, especially, and our colleagues, our fellow students and, and Christian brothers. This characteristic is meant to be prominent in every facet of our lives. So it's not something we just turn on one time and we don't another time. It needs to be part of who we are because of who we have inside of us. God is compassionate. He's loving. He's caring. We should step in and help whenever possible. And in that process, we demonstrate through our acts and our practices and through our general concern for others that our the interest of my heart is not me. The interest of my heart is others and who God puts in my, my walk and my, my spot. Being willing to offer assistance whenever we can. Remember, what's the second greatest commandment? Remember, Jesus is asked. He says, Lord, they say, what's the greatest commandment? This was a Pharisee or um, a Sadducee, I think, was asking that question. What's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then they're like, oh, okay. And then he says, and the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you look, that one's not in the Ten Commandments. But why? Because if you're loving God with everything you have, if you're loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, you will love what God loves. And God loves the world. Not what the world does. He loves the people that he created in the world. We all, whether we are believers or not, carry his image on us. We are here to represent him, and we need to live that out in all ways. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, he says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that's the action. We're supposed to do those things. But Paul goes even further in Titus. He says that talks about their speech. 
It goes, our public-spirited approach to our lives go way beyond what I do. It also goes to what I say. We must be considerate, avoiding slanderous speech, following Jesus' example of responding to reviling with blessing. If somebody reviles you, if somebody curses you, what are you to do? Curse them back? No. You're to bless them. And believe me, many times, blessing somebody who's cursing you, the best way you can bless them is not to say anything. (laughs) And to walk away. Just bless them. We're urged to be peaceable, considerate, refraining from quarreling. We don't need to be fighting. And what's, what's even worse is when the church people fight amongst themselves. That's even worse. But we're not supposed to fight with the world either. The call to humility encompasses our interactions with all people, not just people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and when we demonstrate meekness, we also demonstrate gentleness humility, and a courtesy in our relationships with everyone. And especially in what we say. Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs, if you get a chance, I'm, I'm working on some, a video series I'm trying to do on Proverbs because I think there's so much wisdom in that. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You, you, just think about the children. When, if, you, if you talk to a child a certain way when they're young, it affects them for the rest of their lives. Do you talk, talk words of kindness? Now, there, granted, there are times when children need to have harsh words said to them. There's no doubt. Proverbs also tells us how we're to discipline our children. But many times, we discipline without love. We don't tell our children we love them. We need to tell them we love them. I, I, I never leave the house without telling my kids, I love you. Goodbye, I love you, and we'll see you later. I may not see them later. I never leave the house without kissing my wife goodbye. Ever. Because I don't know. But I need, to, I need to be, in my speech, I need to be kind. I need to be gentle. Our words carry a tremendous amount of influence. It either brings life or encouragement or it brings death and destruction. We're called to be mindful of the weight of our words. Our words can be so weighty. We either are carrying... We're carrying vile things out with our words or we should be using them for God's glory. In Ephesians, Paul gives us a very clear directive. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And I, I know it's hard. It's hard, especially going back to the previous subject of our, our government, it's hard not to criticize them. And probably at times they should be criticized. Their actions, but not the person. I, I have a lot of, I, I don't care for our current president. I have a lot of pity for him because I think he's being used and manipulated by his own family. And I, I pray for him. I pray that God does something for him that he sees the light. But it's sad because I watch him and I just, it breaks my heart because it's not the way somebody should live. Not only that, I wonder if he has any hope of salvation. Because you'll know people by their fruit, and his fruit is not exactly healthy. No, let no corruption come out of your mouths, only such as good for building up that fits the occasion. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't be constantly negative. Our speech should uplift people. It should encourage those who hear it. 
Now, this means we never tell someone something negative? Well, of course not. One thing about Scripture, it's all about balance. Jesus tells us himself, he says, if your brother sins against you, and this is in Matthew 18, he says, go and tell him his fault. Go and tell him. Listen, this is what you did that hurt me. Now, you don't go and you don't, you're not mean to him, and you're, and you're telling him that there's something wrong between the racial issue between you. You are kind. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't talk. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, does that mean you throw them out? No, that means you pray for them because we're supposed to be praying for those who are lost. So you pray for them who are lost. We must correct and rebuke someone who is a believer. We must approach that person privately. We must keep the matter between them and you, personal. Expressing your concern with humility and a desire for resolution. And if that issue persists, then you take two or three with you. That means at least four, it could be up to four people total. Go and talk to the person again. The, the, and, and, and those persons, those people listen to both sides and make it, this, you know, say, hey, listen, well, they're right and you're right. Because usually there's always, I always tell people, there's always three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. And the truth is someplace in there. But a lot of times in our minds, we misconstrue things. But the whole point is to, to provide a possibility to rebuild the relationship. It's always about reconciliation. If it still remains after that, you take it to the church. And I don't mean you bring it up here on Sunday morning and we have everybody on stage and we <laughs> hash it out. No, you take it to the elders. And the elders act as judges in this. And, they, they, and believe me, chances are you're going to chastise them both. It's important to note that the ultimate aim in confronting somebody is to reconcile and restore the relationship. Isn't that what God does with us? We, when we were sinners, we were apart from God. And what does he do? He reconciles us. By what? By the cross. By saving us from our sins through Jesus Christ. He's all about reconciliation. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. I don't like to be told I'm wrong. But we must rebuke those who are walking apart from Christ, especially if false doctrine is involved. This is something that I take very seriously in, in Timothy is told this by Paul in 2 Timothy. He says, preach the word. Tim, Timothy is a preacher. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort and with complete patience and teaching. Don't get angry. Don't get frustrated. Do it calmly and patiently. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I think that time is now. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's where we are today. But see, we've got to be careful that, we're, that we don't confront someone with something that we heard from somebody else. We don't spread gossip. It destroys. Proverbs 16, back to Proverbs again, says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. A gossip will destroy relationships. So before you talk to someone else about a situation, only, and the only way I would say this would be possible to do this is if you needed their advice. And one thing they should always tell you is, go. And 
And it may not be anybody in the church. It may be somebody outside the church. What should I do? I said, have you talked to them? Well, no. That's the first thing you do. Talk to them. Tell them. Because they probably have no idea that you hurt them. They have no idea that, they were, that you were offended. Tell them. You may have misunderstood it. They may have mistake, spoke it. And it may just be a bad misunderstanding. If you sit there and brood on it, you give the devil an opportunity to get a foothold and to make it worse than it really should be. So before you talk about a situation, you need to speak to the person who you are dealing with. And confront them with sound doctrine and not just empty babbling. So what Paul is saying here to Titus is that we are to be do- we're not to be doormats to get stepped on all the time, being so passive that everybody tramples on us, <clears throat> but rather we're to exercise greater strength by not responding to evil with evil. I've had many times as a pastor where I have somebody yelling at me, and what do I do? I take it, and I don't yell back. Oh, inside, I am screaming. Because that's what my human nature wants to do. But God says, no, don't. Whether we are in the church or outside the church, we should just be patient. Listen. Don't repay evil with evil. At no time must I, especially as a pastor, or you as believers, ever lash out and repay evil for evil. But we need to stand for what is right and fight for sound doctrine that God himself has charged us to defend and to protect. Uh, the world very well, you know, the world understands infighting. It's even more important in the church. The world understands what it's like to fight. Look at, look at the halls of Congress. Look at our governments. They're constantly fighting. So as a church, we can't do that. We must not do that. We need to set the example for the rest of the world on how we deal with our problems, how we deal with our disagreements. Sometimes it comes down to we agree to disagree, but we're still loving each other and brothers and sisters in Christ. What wins the gospel a hearing from unbelievers is a very, the very different pattern that the church should have. Those of us in the church are not to model, are, to, are not to model what the world does, but we are to model peacefulness, gentleness, meekness, especially with each other. How? The answer lies in our willingness to show true humility toward all men. What that does, it admit, it, 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 if we're humble, it, it, sh- it allows us to submit to the authorities. Now, I, you know, I've, I've read Revelation. I know what's going to happen in this world. I know that there's going to come a time when we're going to be asked to submit to authority. And during, I've got to be careful how I say this because this will go on online. During 2020, I did not submit to the authorities when they were telling me what I should do. Sorry, because I knew I was, it was wrong. We did a little bit. We tried it out just to be peaceful, but it got to a point where I'm like, I can't do it anymore because I know it's wrong. We need to submit, but we need to do it peacefully. And we need to, sometimes we have to rebel, but we have to do it peacefully. We're to model it. We need to be humble, submitting when we can, caring for our communities, and, and loving peace over personal gain. Paul's instructions highlight the importance of Christians' witness in the world. It's all about how we're witnessing to those around us. And if we're consistently doing this, we're professing our faith, and we're living lives of of humility and hospitality and gentleness and meekness and caring for those around us, we're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. Our faith, 
that for many may seem private, must be accompanied, accompanied by verbal proclamation and acting out. Yes, my faith is my faith. I just told someone online recently, my faith is my faith. I can't force you to have my faith. All I can do is tell you the truth that has been revealed to me through Scripture. But my faith is my faith. You need to have your faith. But I need to help you walk towards faith with compassion and patience and righteous conduct in my own life. These guidelines provide a very, very clear direction for our obligation as believers as we navigate the challenges of living out our faith in a world that is rebelling. And this world is rebelling. Let's pray.